Okay, now I'm clicking find. Just needed a, a little kick. Um, well, yeah, you, you're going to kick it? I need a kick, yeah. Um, the, the, the idea, the problem that comes up because after the Nicene Creed is the, the question concerning um, the relationship um, of, of Christ and himself. The human and the divine natures of Christ. And this is still a subject that's really sore for a lot of people. Here at this church, I've had the same discussion multiple times. This this issue that was coming up out of this, this study. In general... Those theologians linked with the school at Alexandria are going to emphasize the deity of Christ. And those linked with the school in Antioch, remember those were the two major theological schools, and those linked with the school in Antioch are going to emphasize the humanity of Christ. So you're going to have two sides of the story. And as, um, so you have um, this, this, this idea that as we read the scriptures, if Jesus is God and Jesus is man, how do they relate to each other? I remember these are in, if you're on the app, you can see my notes, so you can see these guys' names. Um, this guy right here is the name of Apollinarius, um, who was around 310 to 390. And Apollinarius developed a doctrine um, concerning the nature of Christ when he's about 60 years old. And he attempts to avoid the undue separation of the humanity and the divine nature of Christ. And so he teaches that Christ had a true body and a true soul, but the spirit in man was replaced by Christ by in Christ by the the logos the word. So the logos the word is the divine element actively dominating the passive elements of the body and the soul of Christ in Apollonius's teachings. So he stresses the deity of Christ, but minimizes his true manhood, because the word of God comes is in Christ, and it dominates the manness of Christ. His view will actually be officially condemned in the Council of Constantinople in 381. That's why you've never heard of it. 
<laughs> Though some people still hold to this point of view. In contrast to Apollinaris, there's a man named Nestor, Nestorius. Um, 381 to 452, circa. A scholarly monk who became the patriarch at Constantinople in 421. Sorry, 428. He's going to argue, and see, he dislikes... um, Excuse me. The term... um, English... God-bearer, sorry, God-bearer, as a name for Mary, the mother of Jesus, because he believes it exalts her too high, which many of you probably agree with, that some people exalt her too high. So he offers a different word, Um, Christotokias. Which uh, arguing that Mary was the only that Mary was only the mother of the human side of Christ. By so arguing, he made Christ out to be a man in whom, kind of in like Siamese twin fashion, you have the divine and human natures combined in a union that's kind of more mechanical than organic. And, um, and, and so Christ was, in fact, only, was only, so, so when you do this, you kind of make Christ only a perfect man who's morally linked to the deity, to God. So instead of being, he was, a, so he, Jesus, was the God-bearer, not God-man. Um, in Ephesus at 341, this doctrine is going to be condemned. Though, if you read theological textbooks, you're going to still see this argument in different forms, different wordings, but it's still very much out there. Um, a, a common way this is seen is not at birth anymore. They say, well, it's not at birth. It was when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and that's when Jesus is becomes God. And he bears God at this time. That's going to be a common argument that you'll see in, 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 in theological textbooks. Depends on who you read. The the theology on on this is still very, very wild. Uh, People believe all kinds of different things about how Jesus and God is the same. They try to to, uh, explain stuff. And so you'll see when you start reading theological textbooks, and I know some of you are at the point where you're reading theological textbooks, be careful what you're reading because the stuff there's there's people out there making very cogent arguments that don't match up with orthodoxy of the church. 
Um, there was actually a church. Um, this Nestorius uh, church actually will uh, carry the gospel um, to Persia, India, China. Um, there was a pillar in China found in 1625 that gives evidence to a strong church existing by 700 of this Nestorius church. Um, though it was destroyed sometime in the ninth century. So when you have like this view such as Nestorius, the emphasis is laid on the divine nature of Christ to neglect the human nature. Here's another dead dude. Eutychus. He was the arch mandrake at the monastery in Constantinople. And he insists that after the incarnation, the two natures of Christ, the human and divine, were fused into one nature, the divine. And this results in the denial of the true humanity. He's actually going to be condemned in actually a long letter known as Tome Number 9 by Leo I, the Bishop of Rome. Um held by the Council of of, uh, Chalcedon in 451. It's this Council of Chalcedon in 451. There's a nice picture. Not a photograph. This is someone else's rendition. So don't take it like a photograph. Please don't. I hate when people say, well, that's exactly how it looked. No, this is someone's viewpoint. (laughs) probably painted many years afterwards Um, notice the vicar hats those weren't around when the council was actually about so we know it was quite a bit later when it was painted but anyways um, this council would reject Nestorius, reject uh, Euclidus, and the council will hold that Christ was complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. Uh, For the council of Chalcedon? Oh, um, Pope Leo, Pope Leo the first. Um, you know that's really one of those things that you have to argue about. I mean, according to the Catholic Church, Peter was the first pope. Um, pope Leo was the bishop of Rome in about four forty to. 461. So about that time period. Um, yeah, very long dead. Um, there's been several bishops of Rome 
up to this point. Um, so Pope Leo, um, yeah, he's a good candidate for being the official, the first pope. Um, but I said that depends on which history you're following. Both the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church will argue against that. <laughs> no, uh, official Catholic Roman Catholic Church. No, there was not. But um, um, said uh, you know history uh, is a, a dialogue with the past. So official datings of like when did the Roman Catholic Church officially start? Well, that's actually something that. Um, there's no like, hey, we chartered it on this date. They didn't have like, like we can look up at our charter. Here in the United States, you know, this is when we chartered it. But the church actually started before that when people got together, started writing the bylaws. And when they were meeting at home in the apartment building. And Church of Rome, kind of the, the, even the Roman Catholic Church developed more, more organically like that. It, it's, it's over time. And so different historians will place the start of the Roman Catholic Church at different time periods. A lot of it depends on what you believe. Like if you're a strong Roman Catholic or, or, or an Orthodox, um, you're going to go back further. Let's say you're a Protestant. Or if you're a non-believer altogether, don't even like Christianity, you're actually going to go the furthest this way. Um, so there's no... History is one of those things we have to be flexible with the datings. We just we can't be because it's all a dialogue with the past. Um, and when we talk about the Middle Ages, we're going to talk. When did the Middle Ages start? Well, it kind of depends on how you define that word, <laughs> uh, which we will do in two or three lessons. Anyways, yeah. So. Pope Leo, uh, or the Bishop of Rome, about 440, 461, he led the Council of Chalcedon in 451. There's his major thing. And the council held that Christ was complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. It means truly God, truly man. Or we might say fully God, fully man. Which is still the, 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 the way I teach today. You hear me say this, fully God, fully man. Still the way I teach today. Um, having two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. And, um, and so that's still the way I teach today. And, 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 and you can see it in the scriptures, but the other people were using the scriptures too. These things develop over time. How we look at these things develop over time. Like I said, this, this subject is still not, it, many people argue against it even today. Though I'm going to teach this way. Um, the views of Eutritus um, actually will be in the Eastern Empire in the middle, till the middle of the 6th century. Um, and still over 15 million um, monophytists um, followers of Eutritus 
uh, uh, will exist in Coptic churches of Ethiopia, Egypt, Lebanon, Turkey, and Russia today. So very much still alive today, the teachings of Euphrates. So you have this development. So, so at the council for the Orthodox, the, the, the main branch of the church, you had it settled. Okay, fully God, fully man. Well, then you have a discussion, because it leads into that discussion. Did God have, did Christ have both divine and human will? What did the will of Christ look like? Well, and still, this is one thing that most of, most of us in our walk with Jesus will, ne- have, will never think about it. It's not something where you're like, wait, did could Christ wait? Um, it's just not something where a lot of us are going to talk about. But you say, did Christ have both divine and human will because he's both fully God and fully human? And if so, is one subordinate to the other or are they both equal? Um, there's actually going to be a lot of research material on this, and I'm going to skip over a lot of material right here. Okay? In the Council of Constantinople in 680, 681, I skipped 100 years. (laughs) Um, It was asserted that the two wills of Christ existed in him in harmony uh, in unity in which the human will is subject to the divine will. That's the, what the, the, the settlement came down on. That because he said, not mine, but thine. So he subjugated his human will to the divine will. That's, after a hundred years of debate, that's where they come down on. And if you're interested in the subject... There's lots of good reading out there for you. Very fascinating. But I'm going to skip. <laughs> um, and so the settlement of these... Um, and so this, this left... Um, And so this kind of settled the argument of Christ after with this one, these, these, these kind of debates. We kind of get Christ settling down, especially in the Eastern Church. The Eastern Church is more just, uh, concerned. They're asking questions like Antioch and Rome. They're asking these questions like, well, what about God's divine will? What about this? What about that? Now, in the Greek world... Um, and, and even in the Roman world, even though the Roman church was involved in these other ones, you notice that a lot of it was at Constantinople because the Eastern church is more about the divine will. Roman world tends to be more practical. 
And so they're more, what about us? <laughs> the study of anthropology. What's anthropology mean? I says the manner of man's salvation, but that's not what anthropology means. That's What's anthropology mean? It's a whole study. That's right, study of man. Um, now, we're going to focus in on an aspect of anthropology. Man's salvation. See, the Greek world and the Roman world more with this, this focused on this. And so the questions were concerned with like the problem and the nature of man and how is man saved. Was man to be saved by divine power only or is there a place for humans uh, for the process of, of human will in salvation. And we still have this argument today, don't we? You mightn't have heard of it as Arminius versus Cal- Calvinism because those two argued it in the Protestant's world, but it was actually an argument way before those two got to hold of it. Um, you might have free will versus um, election, or we're calling it reformed now. Um, you know, reformed theology versus free will theology. This is still the same same argument that they were having back in the three hundreds, and we're still as a church. And you know what that tells me? That there's not an easy answer. Well, absolutely, that is definitely one way that people have, have, have looked at it. Uh, it's kind of an argument. Th- this argument really comes down to what does our role in salvation have to do? Free will, no free will. And we still see this argument today. And people have explained it one way or another. Um, David's, how David just explained it, um, it's probably, you know, it's kind of how I feel. It's kind of a stupid question because, you know, you're taking something that uh, is both in the scriptures. And, uh, but, um, but there it is. And it's been around since the 300s. So it's not something we're going to solve. So whatever viewpoint you sit on right now, you can go ahead and study it some more. Because there's another one person who who disagrees with you. <laughs> um, but the two major minds in this Anna, I'm not twitching. There we go. Pelagius first Augustine. Um, yes, I found this picture online, and I liked it. <laughs> um, Plagius, 
uh, British monk and theologian um, who Jerome will describe as weighed down with the porridge of the Scots. So I'm not sure exactly what that means, but uh, that's how Jerome uh, explains him. Came to Rome about 400, um, where he formulates the idea uh, how man is saved. And as soon as Augustine finds out, he has, he's, I don't want to have anything to do with your, your point of view. And um, they're going to have uh, several arguments back and forth and in the councils. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about Augustine here when we talk about this, but we're going to cover Augustine in more depth because he's such an important character at another date. But um, Plagius believes that, man, that each man is created free as Adam, and that each man has the power to choose good or evil. And each soul is separate creation of God, therefore uncontaminated by the sin of Adam. You ever heard of the idea of original sin? Pelagius doesn't believe in that. That's Augustine who actually comes out with that idea. Pelagius doesn't believe in that idea. He says the universal sin is in the world, in, is, 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 is explained by the, the weakness of human flesh rather than the corruption of human from the beginning. So in no original sin, it's just that we are fallen and will continue to fall. But it's not a thing of corruption. Man does not inherit original sin from the first ancestor, um, though the weakness of generations does pass from generation to generation. Um, so therefore, human will is free to cooperate with God in attainment of holiness and can make each um, can, can, can make its way to Christ so free will and in that regard and remember this is still an issue today because there's no original sin there's no need for infant baptism now Augustine Bishop of Hippo. Now we're going to talk about him another time in more detail. But he comes up, he says, no, 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 no. He says, man was originally made in the image of God and free to choose evil. But Adam's sin bound all men because Adam was the head of the race. So we have this idea of original sin. Interesting enough, what is original sin? You know, in the 50s it was taught to be sex. 1930s, 1950s? Mm-hmm. Not what Augustine taught, but that's uh, the idea that sex itself was the original sin. Uh, not the apple. Of course, it's not an apple in the Bible. It says the fruit. A lot of people believe it was probably a fig because that was the primary. The idea of an apple actually comes from Greek mythology because the fruit Apple is the fruit of the gods. So there's, the, like, there's, there's like the golden apple. There's ambrosia that is apple in shape. And that's where you get your Adam's apple from. Is because man ate the apple. And, and you get an Adam's apple from. Um, 
So, but because Augustine believes that there is, that sin is, is brought down, and he's totally deprived, unable to, therefore he's, he's unable to exercise anything in free will, any free will in salvation, and therefore it's all election, it's all God who brings Man is bound so that he has nothing to do with his salvation. Nothing. Um, salvation comes only through the election of God, through grace of Christ. Want to guess who wins this argument? Augustine. Augustine. Now, both arguments are very based on, like you say, well, I see scriptures for this, and I, a lot of that's because of our point of view. And we're all, a lot of us come from traditions that emphasize Augustine's traditions. Plagius has very much, Augustine won this argument more because he was friends with the higher-ups <laughs> than any biblical basis. Now, I'm not saying Augustine's right or Pelagius is right. I'm just saying the argument was not one based off of look in the scriptures. This is what it says here and here, and it, it was it was the Council of uh, Constantinople and Ephesus in 431 um, condemned Pelagius uh, because the head of the council was asked to. But we have another view. We have another contender for this argument. John Cassin. Cassin. He's a monk in about 360 to 435. And he endeavors to find a compromise between the two. Plagius and, and Augustine. He wants to find where the human will and the divine will can cooperate in salvation. So he teaches that all men are sinful because of the fall and their wills are weakened but not totally corrupted. Man is partly free and can co- uh, cooperate with divine grace in the process of salvation. Uh, John worries that the doctrine of election, as uh, Augustine taught, might um, lead to ethical irresponsibilities. And I see this in some Calvinists, what we call Calvinist reforms today. God saved me, there's nothing I can do, so might as well. Why should I tell anyone about Christ? If I sin, it's because God wills it. Um, because if you take that theology too far, which Augustine would argue against, but if you take the theology too far, which John saw that if you take it too far, you have this bad theology. Um, Cassin will actually be condemned at the Synod of Orange in 521 in favor of Augustine's view. The 
argument between these two, um, well, the church has always been a little closer to Augustine than Plagius or of John. However, um, they've never ever committed to any one of these. The church itself has never really committed itself. Augustine won the councils, but the church as a whole never really has committed itself to one viewpoint or the other. Um, the medieval church uh, were quite, were more semi-Pelagian, um, closer to what John taught than anything else. So as you read the, the teachings in the Middle Ages, you're going to see a drifting away from Augustine. So you don't have this um, commitment. And so therefore we still have today this argument in the churches about the nature of how man is saved. And the reformed versus the non-reformed. And, um, you know, when I was in, the, in seminary, this was one of those things that divided people and seminaries from one another seminaries. You know, I had one professor told me, well, if you're not reformed, meaning following Augustine's point of view, then you're not a Christian. And another one said, well, if you don't believe in free will, then you're just a robot and you're not really a Christian. At the same seminary. <laughs> Uh, this this is still very much a hot topic. Um, I have some of my favorite books on the subjects. Um, I've read multiple, multiple books on the subject. I think my personal favorite for a laity, which means not a seminary student, would be uh, Chosen But Free by Norman uh, Geisler. Uh, Geisler, whatever. We have it over there in the, our library if you want to borrow it. Um, it's probably my personal favorite, though at the end of the book he starts, gets away from teaching what he actually believes and starts like going up against, like calling out different pastors and I just, I don't like that so much. I mean, it's okay to call out false teachers, but He's just calling out people that disagree with him, and I, I don't like that. <laughs> but I like, the, but I like the what his teachings on chosen but free. Um, he's got some good, and it's nice and easy for um, someone who hasn't studied <laughs> years of seminary speech. Because there's a whole language you learn in seminary, just like any study. You name your study, you're going to have your own vocabulary. All right. So um, the major controversies are really going to come to an end by 451. And... Um, and we're going to have more of a, for the most part, uh, a well a laid out, this is what Christians believe. 
Now, the fun thing about that is it takes 450 years since the birth of Christ, roughly, I mean, for this to be developed. What does Christianity actually look like in the doctrinal issues? Now, we're going to have a major dust-up of that in a couple of points. The primary one that we're going to talk about in a thousand years from now, not physically, but in our lessons, is the Protestant Reformation. But um, but most for the most part, it's going to be um, going to be settled by then. Okay, any questions? You guys are quiet. All right. Here's what's going to happen now. I'm going to pray us out because some of you guys are falling asleep. We're going to... um, Okay, so next time I teach, we're going to talk about church fathers, some of the, the big names, Christendom, Augustine, um, you know, uh, Eusebius. We're going to talk about some of the major names, uh, church fathers after Nicaea, the, the post-Nicaean fathers is what they're called. Um, this is really going to be like the golden age of church fathers. When you talk about the church fathers, it's these guys, you know, like Eusebius. You're going to be like, well, I still reference it. A lot of the sermons you, that you guys don't know I reference him, I reference him all the time. He's a church historian. Um, Augustine. Uh, you know, like you said, we're, we're going to talk. John Christendom. Um, major. So we're going to start talking about We're going to talk about some of those. Then we're going to talk about the monk system. Um, and that might take us a week or two. And then we're going to move into the Middle Ages. So... We're almost done with the ancient church and then going into the Middle Ages. Um, so that's kind of where we're at. Next week, no online. It's all going to be here. You guys, we're going to look at uh, how the app works. Download Anna's going to be teaching that one. Uh, she told me she drafted her son. He's going to be helping her, though he doesn't know it yet. <laughs> um. So we're going to be looking at that. Um, it's already Christmas. 20th. Uh, 24th, we're having service here. 25th, there's going to be a Bible study. David's leading that and fellowship. No, and I'm, there'll probably be some music. They always sing some music during those Bible studies. Uh, but there's not going to be an actual like service. It's going to be on Christmas Eve. Sam is going to be preaching that one, our candlelight service. We're going to be doing um, no 27th in here. You guys can take the night off, get your rest in between. First, the, first of the year, Sunday the, the first. Yes, I'm, we're going to be here. I've had enough people request us to have a service. So when it comes my turn, wake me up. I'll be right here asleep. <laughs> <laughs> But we're only going to have the 1030 service. And then 
on the third, I guess it is, we'll be back here talking about the church, golden age of the church fathers. Sound good? The holidays. <laughs> um, so if this is your last time with me on Tuesday nights, Merry Christmas. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and pray us out. Father God, we just praise you today, Lord. We thank you for this wonderful blessings. We thank you for all this, uh, the, the, the blessing you have, you have bestowed upon us. We pray that you uh, give us a good Christmas, that we may uh, focus in on you, and focus in on our families, focus in on, uh, on the callings that you have given us uh, as we, we seek to help those in need. And we seek to help those who are want and those who cannot call out for themselves. We pray that we can call out for them. Pray for those who will be traveling in this time. I pray for those that uh, will be suffering in this time. Pray that those who have gone through grief share that we know that they're not alone. We just praise you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.